So growing up as a, a kid in church, uh, I heard a lot of Bible stories. I, I, I went to Sunday school, my, my dad's a pastor, and uh, so we'd be talking about it at the home, we would be talking about it in Sunday school, and then we'd be talking about all these different Bible stories in church as well. And one story that always stood out to me, and honestly I found it a little disturbing, is the story of Elisha and the bears, the female bears. And if you're not familiar with the story, it basically goes like this. Um, There's this prophet named Elisha, and uh, soon after becoming a prophet, a bunch of kids come out and make fun of him for being bald, and Elisha, Elisha curses them, and two female bears come out and attack 42 kids, right? Now, as a kid in Sunday school, and my, who, uh, my dad became a part of the statistic of early onset uh, male pattern baldness, I was always a little concerned about this passage because I, I was like, well, my dad's bald, and he's been bald since he was like 35. Um, and so, you know, as a, as a six-year-old, you're like, wow, okay, don't make fun of my dad for being bald or I'm going to get attacked by a bear. And I, I sure did not want bears trying to teach me a lesson after making fun of all the hair-challenged folks of this world. And so, not as funny and more seriously, I think this story has led to a lot of confusion. Uh, but more ironically and funny is that it has led to some pretty intense art. <laughs> uh, specifically, the, the art that they show kids in Sunday school for these kinds of things kind of gets crazy. Uh, here are some examples. <laughs> there are some pretty graphic ones. I mean, not all of these are meant for kids, obviously, but the cartoons specifically designed to show kids about this story, which is just crazy that they would choose these illustrations to teach this story. Um, we don't need to look at this much longer, so let's go ahead and get rid of that before we scar ourselves. So not only has this passage been uh, potentially traumatizing, <laughs> it has also uh, led a lot of people, I think, to view God poorly. Um, to, to let people think that maybe God is, is a bad person or a, a bad being and that Elisha is this grumpy old man who can't take a joke, right? And so six a couple of bears on a, on a bunch of kids. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, the Old Testament has some really honest stuff in it. I mean, there are, I mean, not PG-rated things that go on in the Old Testament. But I'm not sure this is one of those things. I, I did see an atheist post, and that, this is the bad thing about uh, passages that are just read by uh, atheists in this example, and they just are taken out of context, and they say, look at this passage where there's this grumpy old bald man who has a couple of bears attack some kids. And they're like, how can a god that's good do that, and how can his prophets do that? And I think it can be damaging. It, it can be damaged, damaging to the faith. It can, people can use this to tear down the faith. They can use it to belittle God. And there are many misunderstood passages in the Old Testament, in the, in the Bible entirely. And I think we would do good to try and understand them. So I was talking with Nate earlier this week. I was like, hey, Nate, if you needed to put together a three-week sermon series... <laughs> 
getting ready for Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, what would you want to hear about? And he's like, what about all those weird Bible stories? (laughs) And I'm like, okay, perfect. So we're talking about obscure Bible stories, uh, ones that are less common, ones that sometimes don't make sense to us, and we, we know about them, but what do they mean, and why are they there? So that's what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks. We're going to be talking about these Bible stories that are not usually highlighted, looking for their meaning, looking for their purpose for being in the Bible. Why are these stories included? And so this gives us an opportunity to practice exegesis and hermeneutics, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago in our Discerning Truth series. So over the next few weeks, get ready to uh, go through some passages we normally wouldn't be looking at. And this week, we're starting with the before-mentioned story of Elisha and the bears. So go ahead and turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 2. So the book of Kings in general is a chronology of the kings of Israel and Judah. And for a bit of historical context, there are two guys that start at the beginning of chapter 2. One of them is Elijah, who's a prophet, and Elisha, who is also going to be a prophet. Now, I know that can be confusing because their names are so similar, but what helps me remember who is who is alphabetical order. Elijah comes before Elisha in the alphabet, and Elijah came before Elijah in the timeline. Okay, so we have Elijah and we have Elisha. Like I said, they're both prophets. And Elijah and Elisha, for that matter, served and uh, ministered in the northern kingdom of Israel. And they, they were there to clean up Israel. And at this point, Israel had split into two sections um, because there was a problem with the king a few generations ago. But we'll talk a little bit about that later and how the kingdom split. So the northern part of the kingdom was known as Israel, and the southern part was known as Judah. So Elijah was serving in this northern part, and he was there to reestablish proper belief. That's what God wanted him to do. He wanted to to bring these Israelites who had gone astray back to him. And so he went up against people like Ahab and Jezebel. If you want to hear more about Elijah, go to McKenzie's Sunday school class. She's going to be talking about him. Um, So there's some pretty bad and ungodly rulers and things that happened in the northern kingdom. And Elijah's ministry fighting against that and trying to bring people back to God was coming to a close. He was getting older. It was time for him to retire, so to speak. And so God wanted him to get an apprentice, wanted him to to get someone else to come up after him. And so he picks Elijah. God uh, tells him to pick Elijah to continue on this process of restoring proper worship in the kingdom. So there's a new prophet, Elijah, who is in the story. And this is how we get to the whole bear attacking thing. Because Elijah comes on the scene. So Elijah um, and Elijah are traveling around together. They go from uh, Gilgal. Well, let me give you a map here to help you out. So you see this dividing line. That's the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. And they split when Rehoboam became king after. So it was King Saul, King David, King Solomon, and then King Solomon's son Rehoboam didn't listen to the advice of the people he should have, and the kingdom split. So they, Elijah and Elijah, start chapter 2 in Gilgal. And then Elijah says, God wants me to go to Bethel. And then he wants me to go to Jericho. And then Elijah and Elijah together cross over the Jordan River, which is the 
kind of the separating line east and west. And over here are um, some cousins, essentially, of the Israelites. So they cross over the Jordan River. And after they cross over the Jordan River, on dry ground, by the way, God performs a miracle and they walk over on dry ground. Elijah is taken up in a chariot of fire and Elijah grabs Elijah's mantle and then officially becomes the prophet that God is ordained and working through. So Elijah crosses back over the Jordan River. So he's on this side. He crosses back over the Jordan River on dry ground, once again with this miracle. Much in the same way, that might sound familiar to you, to Joshua. So Joshua came in from the east side of the Jordan River to the west side of the Jordan River in order to reestablish, or to, excuse me, to establish for the first time God's people in that land, to establish the proper form of worship, what God wanted to do in that land. And Elijah is kind of coming in to do the same thing, except it's reestablishing. So that's where we pick up the story of Elijah and Elijah in this chapter. So look at me at chapter, with me at verse 14 of chapter 2. So he, meaning Elijah, took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him and struck the waters. And he said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elijah crossed over. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho, as you'll see, it's right on the other side of the river there, opposite him, saw him, and they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elijah. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves down to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, there are, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and search for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him on some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Send. And they sent therefore fifty men, and they searched three days, but they did not find him. They returned to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? Then the men of the city said to Elijah, Behold now, the situation of the city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. And he said, Bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall be not from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day according to the word of Elijah, which he spoke. Here's the, here's the juicy part. Then he went up from there to Bethel, as you'll see to the west and a little bit north. And he was going up by the way. As he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him and said, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And when he looked behind him, he saw them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up the 42 lads of their number. Okay, so if you were just reading along in the book of Second Kings, and you come into the story, you may be surprised to find it at all, right? I would, it would be easy to read this story, I think, as Elijah as this, uh, some kind of bald, grumpy old man who can't take a joke, right? And then using his prophet status to curse these boys and, and God goes along with the plan and then has these two female bears come out and start attacking all these kids. That does not make Elijah look like a good guy, right? Well, 
Let's take a second look at this passage and get some context and break down some of the Hebrew words. And perhaps we'll have a better understanding of what's going on. So we're going to do exactly what we did. Talk about a couple of weeks ago, exegesis. And we're going to start by answering some questions. First of all, it mentions the city of Bethel. What do we know about the city of Bethel? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 2, or 1 Kings chapter 12, excuse me, Bethel becomes the city known for improper worship. And so the king of the north, the north side there, is Jeroboam. And right after the Israel and Judah split into two kingdoms, he gets really worried. Jeroboam thinks he's going to lose his power. He's going to lose his power and be killed. And so Jeroboam does this to fix it. Let's go ahead and look at what he says. Jeroboam said to him in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem. So Jeroboam up here was afraid that his people were going to go down to Jerusalem where the temple was to perform sacrifices. And if they did that, then he'd lose his political power. Then the hearts of the people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king con- uh, consulted and made two golden calves and he said to them, that's a bad sign already. And he said to them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Wow. He set one of them in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as, as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places, and made priests from among all the people who were not of the son of Levi. That was a no-no. And Jeroboam instituted a feast. He shouldn't have done that. In the eighth month of the 15th day of the month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he went up to the altar. Thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves which he had made, and the place he shouldn't have been doing it. And he sanctioned in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made, which he shouldn't have done. So essentially Jeroboam sets up a new religious institution in Bethel and Dan to keep his power and to make... Uh, Bethel, the new Jerusalem for his kingdom. And he essentially sets up this whole thing of improper worship. So you fast forward a few decades and you fast forward a few different kings and you end up in the time of Elijah and Bethel is still the center of improper worship. And so it wouldn't be surprising to find people in Bethel, probably of these uh, priests who were set up that weren't supposed to be there, who were opposing God. And opposing his prophets. And wanted to mock both of them. Right? It was not uncommon, especially in this time, for there to be a lot of resistance to what God was doing. And I think that is some pretty good evidence to start us on the path of why is this story even mentioned in the first place? Well, it's probably because Bethel was this headquarters for improper worship. And so these people there would have been fighting against God and his prophets. Now let's look at the Hebrew words translated young lads. It might say little children or sometimes small boys in your Bible. So the Hebrew phrase, Hebrew phrase used here is katan, right? And that is an accurate translation to say child boy or a young boy or a small boy. It's not, it's not wrong, okay? But this now, our katan can have a much broader range of meaning, and I'm going to show that to you. So, for instance, um, 
Na'ar, which is the noun, um, is used to talk about Absalom, which is David's son. Um, and he was a fully grown man when they used this term. Albeit, he was probably an older teenager, so maybe 16, 17, around the age of 20. But it's not like he was a seven-year-old or a preschooler or something, right? This word was used to talk about um, people all the way up to the age of 30, even into priests. So this word can also be used uh, to mean a young man or someone like a servant or attendant. An attendant. And, and what this word indicates is that the person being talked about is somehow in a position under someone else. So yeah, it applies to sons and daughters who are under their parents, but it also applies to priests who are under the high priest. It's also used in scripture this way. It also applies to someone like Absalom, who was a son of David, even though he was an older teenager, still used this term. And let's go on to discuss the adjective katan right here, which does mean small or little, um, and but used with this pairing with na'ar, it means, it has been used to be a mature man. So in the book of Kings, Hadan the Edomite, who was a fully grown warrior able to fight and rebel, had this exact same phrase used of him, na'ar katan. And in 1 Kings 3.7, Solomon, when he took over the throne, used this term of himself, and he was 20 years old, all right? So he said, I am yet just like a small boy, or talking about his position, right, under God, right? He, he has a form of submission and realizing he doesn't have everything figured out. So I propose that based on the context of the story, and the use of these words elsewhere in the book of Kings, that we aren't talking about preschoolers. We're not talking about seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds. It's not like a bunch of Tommies are running around making fun of this bald guy. I think it's potentially a group of older teenagers or young men, even up to the age of 30, who were doing this on purpose, who were mocking Elijah because he was a prophet. Not because he was bald, but because he was a prophet of God. And some scholars even believe that the men mentioned here were potentially young priests of this improper worship from Bethel, right? That were following along with uh, Jeroboam's set up improper worship. And so what do we make of the insult, go up, bald head, or go up, baldy, as some translations say? Why is that in there? What does that even mean? Well, go up is the exact same Hebrew phrase used about Elijah when he was going up and called up by God in the fiery chariot. And so maybe they were um, calling for Elijah himself to leave just to get out of the land. Or maybe they were mocking Elijah's ministry. Maybe they thought that he disappeared or he ran away from his responsibility. And the whole being bald part, if you think about it, is kind of interesting. Why did they choose that? Well, in my research, as I was looking into this passage, I came across, came across an author named Daniel Hoffman. And he said this, which I think was kind of interesting. In one of the final episodes of Elijah's life, in which he meets the messenger of King Ahaziah, Elijah is described as literally a lord of hair, or as the NASB has it, a hairy man. So Elijah is also described as Elijah's master. We read that just in the chapter here. 
The Hebrew word for master here is rosh, which is head, a physical head of the body. But as in English, head can also have the sense of chief or master. When Elijah was taken up into heaven, Elijah lost his master. In the words of the text, Elijah lost his hairy head. So it very well could be that these young men were purposefully mocking the grief that Elijah was feeling for losing his master, pulling into question Elijah's anointing, maybe, as a prophet, or even calling him to go away like his former master did. So maybe they thought Elijah ran away. That's a potential. At this point, it had been three days since Elijah, or it had been something closer to more like four or five days since Elijah uh, had been taken up. And given the proximity to the Jordan River, it would make a lot of sense that they knew that Elijah was gone. So looking at all the evidence here, I think an interpretation that fits better with this passage in its context is not Elijah having some kids attacked by bears because of a small insult to his hair, but rather a group of people old enough to be accountable for their actions, making fun of a prophet with a pointed insult calling him into question God's blessing on Elijah, the loss of Elijah, and belittling the work that God was doing through them. To me, at least, that makes a lot more sense. And it's serious enough for Elijah to have the extreme reaction that we see in the passage. And it's serious enough for God to respond in kind the way that he did in this passage. Keep in mind, there isn't a ton of detail here. For us to be totally sure exactly what the circumstances were, right? It's only two verses. But to me, this makes a lot of sense. Now, sure, we may have a better understanding of what's going on here. Why is this even in Scripture? But what does that mean for us? Is there anything that we can take away? Well, I think there is. Number one, it matters a lot how you respond to what God is doing, right? So in this story, we have the side-by-side of two different cities. Right, in two different groups of people. We have the city of Jericho, and we have the city of Bethel. In Jericho, the people uh, recognized Elijah as a prophet. They bowed down to him. They searched for Elijah. They obviously cared what God was doing. They took him seriously. And as a result, they received a blessing. Their water was purified. And on the other hand, we have the city of Bethel, who came out and they mocked the prophet of God, and they made fun of Elijah, and they made fun of God in the process. And just as with all sin, it infringes on God's holiness, and that is always punished in the end. Sin is always punished. In most cases, sin is judged later. It's going to be judged later when God sends his son back to the world. But in a few specific cases, I'm thinking of Aaron's sons who offered the strange fire in the tabernacle, or maybe Ananias and Sapphira who were uh, struck down after they lied about their giving. I think it's a similar circumstance here where God's judgment comes right away, you know, where the, the mocking of his holiness is judged immediately. And we need to be careful that when we run into what God is doing, that we come on board with his plans and we don't mock him or fight against them, right? That we are aware of what he's doing and we get on board. Number two, don't make fun of balding people or you'll be attacked by bears. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not really number two. Number two, the Bible includes details for a reason. When the Bible gives us details, if someone took the time to write it down, they must be important, right? Why are they in here at all? 
So when you come across a story and you think, hmm, that's a little weird. Why did they say that? Why is that mentioned? Take a second. Think about it. You might realize something about the passage that you didn't know about or that you might otherwise missed. And it can take only a few minutes sometimes or just a few seconds looking at the surrounding passages to come away with a more clear meaning. Sometimes it can take longer, though. It can take some more intense study, like what I had to do for this, to really understand why this insult, why the bears, why what's going on. But it's worth the effort in the end. So the Bible just doesn't say things for no reason. If there's something in there, it's there for a reason. And number three, God is holy and just, which is a theme throughout the entire Old and New Testament, all of the Bible. Everywhere in Scripture we see it. And we even see it in these small stories that are just a couple of verses long, like Elisha and the bears. Like I said earlier, there's a strong relationship between Joshua coming into the promised land on God's orders to clean up the sin of the land and to establish the correct and holy worship. And Joshua enters the land the exact same way that Elijah does, through the Jordan on dry ground, and he goes to Jericho first, and then he goes to the Bethel and the surrounding cities. And Elijah does the exact same thing, to come in and set up the holiness that God wants. And Joshua does that, and then the people messed up, and then things got better, and they messed up again. And God kept sending them prophets, and they kept standing up against him with evil and injustice, which was just so prevalent in that area. And even after all of that, God still wants them back. Even though God is just, and every one of us should be killed right now for our sins, to be honest. Even though God is just, he is also merciful. And he shows grace upon us. And he, and he shows us favor. And he saved us through his son. And he's working through his prophets here to try to get back to what the world's supposed to be. Taking seriously his holiness and justice, but also realizing his mercy. So I hope you've had a little bit of fun looking at this less common passage from Second Kings today. I know it's kind of fun to talk about this story because we don't get too often... I mean, we could talk about it every week if we want to, but I feel like that would get boring pretty quickly. So I hope this helped you think about it in maybe a little bit of a different way than you normally would. And that's the point of this series, to take, it, take some of these less common things and make sense of them. So I hope you join me next week as we look at another obscure Bible passage and try to make sense of it. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the opportunity this morning for us to come together and to uh, learn about uh, your word in its entirety, to, to try to study everything that has been written down about you and your people and what you've been doing. Pray that you give us the wisdom and mind to understand it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.